0: tends to be common during this season, it has been a hectic morning. As we were reminded by the video we saw just a second ago, it's been a hectic year. God has been moving throughout it all. The things that God has done through our congregation in our community, the things that God has done through our family of churches, both here in Middle Tennessee and really throughout the world, its nothing short of miraculous. Seeing Natasha read the scripture this morning reminds me of the incredible miracle that we have to worship together both in this place and virtually. Natasha, I know you're watching this morning and we love you and we're grateful that you get to be a part of this congregation. Seeing some of the things, just a tip of the iceberg that God has done through your generosity over this past year during these hectic times has reminded me of who is in charge. And in the middle of all of the chaos, I get to stand here, sleeve wet from a baptism, and there's no place on earth I'd rather be. We continue this morning our walk through the gospel of Luke. Those that have been with us for the last few months know that we're breaking up Luke's gospel into several different mini-series. This morning is our last Sunday in a mini-series where we are exploring some of Jesus' parables We have looked at the parable of the sower. We have looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Last week we were talking about the rich fool. It all started, if you remember, with Carla Worley up here on a Sunday morning several weeks ago. As she kind of walked us through the way Jesus would teach these stories he would tell. She gave us some tools on how to receive these stories, how to process the stories, how to memorize the stories so that we could tell others. She gave us some questions we should be asking ourselves every time we hear one of Jesus's parables. What do you like about this story? What makes you uncomfortable about the story? What does this story teach you about yourself? And what does this story teach you about God? This week in our last Sunday examining some of Jesus' parables, we get to look at one of, if not the most famous of all of his stories, the parable known throughout the world as the parable of the prodigal son. Now, the prodigal son, this has, this has made its way into just common culture and society, Nearly everyone has had some point of contact with this story, at least is familiar with the term, the prodigal son. It's made its way into pop culture. It is in uh, art. It is in movies, theater, music. Josh, the classic American song by House of Pain, Jump Around. You remember? Just like the prodigal son, I've returned. Anyone step into me, you'll get burned. It's poetry. It has infiltrated every part of our society the problem is because we are so familiar with the idea of the prodigal son the more familiar we get the further we remove ourselves from the actual story from the actual details if there is any parable that needs a rebranding effort it's this one And this morning, it's my prayer that we are able to look at this story with fresh eyes, with a fresh heart. And where that starts is not in the text of the parable itself, but actually at the beginning of Luke chapter 15. If you've got your Bibles open, look back with me at just the first couple of verses of chapter 15. Luke writes, All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, Jesus, And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and even eats with them. So that's the stage. That's the context into which Jesus was teaching this parable, telling this story. You see, Jesus has been traveling around the region, town to town, village to village, preaching in the synagogues, uh, teaching in the town squares, performing miracles. The more places he goes, the larger the crowds get. They want to hear him teach. They want to see a miracle, perhaps even touch him. The crowd, each passing day, is filled with a greater percentage of scofflaws, a greater percentage of those that have been marginalized, marginalized. Those that have been rejected by the religious elite, often they are called tax collectors and sinners. These terms that that are used to describe those that both wouldn't be caught dead inside a church and even if they wanted to, wouldn't be allowed. Now, we have this crowd of tax collectors and sinners coming to listen to Jesus, but at the same time, we've got Pharisees and we've got scribes. They would often follow Jesus around as well. Some absolutely just wanted to hear this rabbi that everybody was talking about. So charismatic, so magnetic. I wanna hear what this man is teaching about others. Perhaps most of the Pharisees and the scribes, these religious elite are going to check up on him. Making sure he, he is teaching the same things that they're teaching He's getting way too popular, way too powerful. This is becoming a problem. And not only are the tax collectors and sinners coming to be close to him, coming to hear him, but he even dines with them. You have to understand in that culture, if you were to sit down and share a meal with someone, break bread with someone, that will be be a sign that you accepted them, a sign that you were willing to be associated with them. No Pharisee, no scribe in their right mind would dare to be associated with these people that Jesus was associating himself with. Therefore, they would grumble, they would complain. This guy can't be real, he can't be who he says he is. Because no true rabbi, no good Jew, certainly no one that claimed to be who he said he was, would dare to dine with tax collectors and with sinners. And it's into that context that Jesus tells not one, but three parables, each relating to the other. He starts out with the parable of the lost sheep. A shepherd has 100 sheep. He looks up, he realizes one is gone. He leaves the 99 sheep to find the one lost sheep, carrying it on his shoulders back to the rest of the flock. When he does, he calls all of his friends and neighbors and says, Let's celebrate because my sheep was lost and now it's found. He immediately follows that with the parable of the lost coin. A woman has 10 coins. As she looks, she realizes there are only nine left. One is lost. She lights the lamp, turns her house upside down, looking in every nook, every cranny, in between the couch cushions until she finally finds the lost coin. When she does so, she calls her friends. She calls her neighbors. Let's celebrate. My coin was lost, and now it's found jesus follows those two parables with a third this one a bit more detailed and nuanced there's a rich man he's got a couple of sons one day the younger son comes to the father and says would like for you to give me all of my inheritance now Now, you need to understand, in that culture, in that society, this would have been the ultimate insult, son, to father. Essentially, what the son was saying was, I do not care about my relationship with you. In fact, I wish you were dead so that I could have what's coming to me. As of today, father, you're dead to me. Give me my inheritance so I can leave and live on my own. Now, as shocking as that would have been to the Jewish listeners, what comes next is more shocking, and that's the father actually does it. You need to understand, the the inheritance, the, the estate wasn't caught up in bank accounts. It wasn't in 401ks or mutual funds or stocks. He couldn't just write a check. All wealth at the time was in real estate, in land. The younger son would have been due one third of the estate for the father to give away that estate. He would have to sell off land that would have been in his family for generations. He doesn't get it back. That land is gone. But the son says, I want my inheritance now. I want to leave The father sells off the land and gives him his portion of the assets. Famously, the son goes to a foreign country. He squanders everything he has been given, making bad decisions, wild living, all of the things that were warned against. He eventually finds himself penniless, and suddenly there's a famine in this foreign country. So here he is, without two pennies to rub together, in a foreign land that's just gone in to economic crisis. What do I do now? In desperation, he goes to a local pig farmer and says, let me feed your pigs just to give me a place to sleep. You need to understand if he's in a foreign land, this farmer is a Gentile. Working with a Gentile, would have been considered incredibly unclean in that situation. Not only that, but he is feeding the pigs, an unclean animal. Not only that, he's not even getting paid for it because we see in the story that he can't even afford to eat the food the pigs are eating. This would be as though a small town, like super conservative Southern Baptist congregation. Here's that one of the young sons in the congregation went to the big city, squandered all of his money. And now he is mopping floors at a seedy strip club just so they will allow him to sleep on the couch. This is the very picture, the very definition of rock bottom. Now that story up to this point would have been incredibly familiar to the audience that was listening. Stories like this were told all the time by Jewish mothers and grandmothers at the time. They were these cautionary tales of if you go out on your own, if you break the Jewish law, if you live with Gentiles, you will end up slopping pigs, sleeping with them, so poor you can't even eat their food. This is what happens when you go against God's law. But having heard the lost sheep, having heard the lost coin, no doubt the entire audience knew that wasn't the end of this story and it wasn't. Because you see, in that moment, the young man sleeping with the pigs, hungry, broke, absolute rock bottom, comes to his senses. Some of your translations this morning says he returned to himself. He remembered himself. He remembered who he was as a son. He remembered where he came from. And he thought, you know what? My father's employees, his hired hands, his servants live light years better than where I am right now. If I went back, maybe he would just take me on as a hired hand. He begins to rehearse his speech. Father, I have sinned against you. I've sinned against God. I am no longer to even be called your son. Would you just hire me as one of your employees? And he resigns himself to crawling back home, tail between his legs. Now the journey would have been long days, perhaps even weeks. No doubt, every day he rehearses his speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. I'm so sorry. I'm No longer worthy to be your son. Would you please take me on as one of your employees? With each passing day, he goes over the speech until the moment he comes to the bottom of the hill. He knows when I crest this hill, I'm going to see my home. And as he gets to the top, rehearsing the speech in his head, what does he see? But his father running towards him up the road. Now you need to understand, men, certainly men of means and power in this culture, did not run. It was incredibly undignified. You would have to pull up your robes, exposing your bare legs. Children ran. Men did not run. But here is his father running towards him up the road I have no doubt in that moment he was thinking oh my goodness this is way worse than I have imagined what is he going to say to me when he gets here but as soon as his father arrives he hugs him he begins to kiss him it would have been a shocking scene for this young man expecting the worst and being received with hugs and kisses he doesn't know what to do but he does know he's been rehearsing the speech in his head for weeks and so he steps back father i am so sorry i have sinned against you i have sinned against god i am no longer worthy to be called your son but before he can finish his father is already calling for the servants Bring the best robe, put a ring on his finger, put shoes on his feet and ready the fatted calf. You have to understand this is a scene of complete and total restoration. The robe would have been his father's. The ring signifying his sonship. Only members of the family wore shoes. servants never would have. Meat was rarely eaten then, set aside for special occasions, religious holidays, weddings. Certainly the fatted calf was set aside only for the feast to end all feasts. And that's exactly what the father was going to do. Tonight we celebrate. My son was dead and now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's alive. As the crowd heard this story, the tax collectors, the sinners, in that moment had to have been elated, filled with joy, recognizing that's me. And Jesus is telling me about full restoration. At the same time, the Pharisees and the tax collectors, expecting the end because they 'd heard the lost sheep they 'd heard the lost coin, they knew what was coming, no doubt rolling their eyes. We get it, Jesus. you really like the people that we 've marginalized. We get it. You like the tax collectors, and you like the sinners. Have you ever watched a movie? And you're into it, and you know exactly what's happening. You're thinking, I love this. I'm all in. And suddenly, out of nowhere, at the very end, a character that was introduced in the first scene that you haven't seen since and you forgot existed re-enters the picture. That's what happens here. Because if you remember, we start with a rich man had two sons. Just when the crowd would have thought, yes, we get it, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. We understand what you're trying to tell us. Jesus says, the older son, remember him? He was standing out in the fields. He hears the commotion. He hears the music. He hears the dancing. He probably smells the meat being cooked. He asks the servant, what's going on? And the servant says, it's your brother. It's your brother. He's back. And your father called us to slaughter the fatted calves. We're having a celebration, the feast, to end all feasts because your brother was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he is found. What does the older brother do? He pouts. He gets angry and he stands firm exactly where he is. The father, there at the celebration, his son has come home, been fully restored, no doubt looks around and recognizes that his eldest son isn't there. Asking around, he finds out he's out in the field. Now, you have to understand this man, this father, he was the master of the estate, the king of the castle. He could command anyone and anybody, anything, whatever he wanted to do. The servant that says he's out in the field, the father easily could have said and probably should have said, go get him and bring him here. But he didn't. In an act of incredible humility, the father, in the same way that he ran to his son at the end of the drive, goes out into the field for his older son and pleads with him, come back with me, come to the house, come to the party, let's eat together, your younger brother is home. In verse 29 of Luke chapter 15, we see the older son's response. But he replied to his father, look, I have been slaving many years for you. I've never disobeyed your orders and you never even gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who devoured your assets with prostitutes you slaughter the fatted calf for him as the father comes out and and asks his son come back come to the feast with me come to the party with me the son responds and there's a couple of things you need to know about this response look i have slaved away for you for years First of all, he does not address the father by his title. He doesn't call him father. He doesn't call him dad. He doesn't even say, sir, that would have been a massive insult at the time. He's saying, I don't even recognize you as a father. I've slaved away for you for years. I've never disobeyed any of your orders. In that, he is not even recognizing himself as a son. It's an employee employer relationship. The father son relationship has been broken. Perhaps the most shocking thing of this scene is the reason the fellowship between the father and son has been broken. And the son gives us the reason in this statement Look, I have slaved away for you for years. I have never disobeyed any of your orders. I've done everything right. You see, he is losing his relationship with his father, not in spite of his goodness, but because of it. Let me say that again. The older son is losing his relationship with his father, not in spite of his goodness, but because of his goodness. It is his pride in his own moral record and standing that has created a barrier between him and his father, a barrier that he just cannot break down. I have done everything right. You Oh, me. In that moment, having received that grave insult from his son, the father's response, verse 31. Son, he said to him, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. Still recognizing him as a son. Lavish with his grace and his love. Everything that I have is yours. Tonight we celebrate. Come back with me because... My son was dead and now he is alive. My son was lost and now he is found. And then it ends. You see, we go from the plot twist of the older son entering back into the picture to the cliffhanger. Jesus never finishes the story. We don't know. The decision the older brother made. The older brother in the story is left in his alienated state. Arms crossed, steadfast, standing firm in the field with an open invitation to re-enter the fellowship with his father. Father. The Pharisees and the scribes listening would have known exactly what Jesus was saying and they would have been scandalized by it. You see, so often we limit this parable to a story of a wayward sinner allowed to come home. Tim Keller writes, the targets of this story are not actually wayward sinners, but religious people who do everything the Bible requires. Jesus is pleading not so much with the immoral outsiders as with the moral insiders. He wants to show them their blindness, their narrowness and self-righteousness and how these things are destroying both their own souls and the lives of the people around them. You see, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin sets up the parable of the lost sons. Jesus was speaking, yes, to the tax collectors and the sinners and reminding them, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've said. It doesn't matter where you've been. You have an invitation to complete restoration with your creator. At the same time, as he led the crowd down that primrose path, he sucker punches the Pharisees and the scribes. Not so fast. Because there are those of you whose relationship with the Father is purely transactional. I will do what you have me do so that you give me what's coming to me. And in that state, you are left standing arms crossed in the field. The book that, that Keller quotes come from, comes from is called The Prodigal God. If you've never read it, I would highly recommend it. The title, The Prodigal God, can be a bit off-putting for many of us because we don't really understand that word prodigal. The reason is because who uses the word prodigal? The only time we ever come in contact with that word is in reference to this story, the prodigal son. Therefore, it's assumed that word prodigal has to do with the wayward journey the younger son is on, but that's not what the word means at all. Prodigal doesn't mean wayward. It actually means recklessly extravagant. It can certainly apply to the younger son who was reckless in his extravagance, spending everything he had with no regard for the outcome, leaving him penniless with the pigs. But it more so applies to the father in this story. Everything I have is yours, the father says. Extravagant, over the top, mind-blowingly liberal with his estate and his assets and his riches when it came to his children. The father says, whether you wish me dead and run away, squandering everything I give you, or whether you see me simply as an ATM transactional, you see me as a business partner who owes you your share of my riches. Either way, you have an open invitation into the feast to end all feasts. You cannot earn it. You cannot lose it. It is free and it is available to you. All you have to do is walk inside with me. If the targets of this parable are the religious moralists, the subject of this parable is a God that is scandalously extravagant with his love and his grace and his mercy. the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost sons. Each of these stories ends with a celebration so amazing we can't even imagine it. Thrown by a God that gives every single one of us, regardless of where we've been, of decisions we've made, of the bad or the good that we've done a free invitation into that fellowship. Let's pray together to that God. Lord, do not allow us to limit your grace and your mercy to only those we deem worse than we are. Remind us of the extravagant nature of your love and your grace and your mercy. A free invitation to dine in fellowship with the creator and the lover of our souls. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.